Hey friend, welcome back to the podcast. I'm so glad that you're here and happy 21st to a step forward, right? Super exciting. If this were like years or age and not just weeks, numbers of a podcast, we would be out celebrating tonight. But since this is simply a podcast and it comes out weekly, so we reach 21 much faster, we're gonna still have a little bit of a party, but more of a professional doing whatever you're doing right now party, whether you are riding a bike or whether you are on a treadmill or obviously I need to go work out because those are all the examples I'm thinking of. Maybe you're driving a car. That's probably more appropriate. Whatever you're doing, I hope you really enjoy this episode because we are going to be diving into how to roll with these skills to an instructional aid. And I want to let you know that this isn't just for orientation and mobility specialists, although I will give some of those examples. This episode is for anybody who has to be working with an instructional aid. Also to let you know that it's Saturday afternoon here. It's nap time for one of my kiddos and the other one is doing his best to not watch TV. And we're trying to hold strong so you might hear him in the background. But this question actually came from Instagram. I don't know if we're friends on the grams. You can find me at Cassie Maloney. It's my personal Instagram account. You'll see some stuff from the podcast and work, but you'll also get to know me behind the scenes. And I asked a question on my stories about what kind of content you guys wanted. And I got the most exciting question back. I don't know how else to say it, but On the Move 1971 asked about releasing skills to an instructional aid. Now, this could be called a paraprofessional it could be called the teacher's assistant, whatever your school district calls them. We're just going to call them instructional aid because that's what my Instagram friend called it. And it doesn't really matter what the word is or the name is, right? We're just going to use that word. And we're going to dive into, as far as orientation and mobility, what skills are appropriate to role release? What skills you as an O&M specialist need to be teaching? And then also getting into how to help them and how to train them and how to give them criticism that's not going to make you seem like the bad person or the mean boss or anything like that because your role is a little bit tricky. You're not necessarily anybody's boss, but you do have more expertise and so you need to be able to leverage that. You might also be wondering why, like, why do we need to roll release skills to an instructional aid? Well, specifically for my Instagram friend, it was because of a high caseload and you want your students to be able to practice their skills more often, to be able to generalize their skills, to foster a team effort within everybody in the educational team, and also to see your students' skills actually skyrocket faster. Because as you know, you are with them, what is it, one, maybe two hours a week? And that's out of what, how many waking hours? I think it was like 6,000. So you get one out of 6,000 hours. The percentage of that of direct service versus when they're actually awake and needing to know where they are in space and how to get to where they want to go is very minimal. So you definitely want to be able to use your instructional aids 
in a way that helps foster all of your students' skills and allows you to focus on more expertise level skills. Now, if you've been in orientation and mobility for a while, you may have actually had an O&M assistant. And we're going to basically take those rules from the OMA and apply them to the instructional aid. If you haven't been in this field for a very long time, orientation and mobility assistants were basically like instructional aides, but their main focus was orientation and mobility. And they were able to teach some skills and not others. Now, it's my professional opinion that their focus was orientation and mobility and they weren't certified comms. And in those moments where your instructional aide is traveling with your student, it's kind of the same thing. So before we dive into that, I want to share a personal story with you. It's my personal experience with an orientation and mobility assistant. When I first got my very first orientation and mobility job, I was 22. I had graduated with my bachelor's, but was finishing up my master's, and I was assigned an OMA. At the place I worked, they had an OMA who was still doing that job position, and it was terrifying. I don't know if you know very much about me personally, but I've really had to grow into the leadership role that I have now. It's not something that came easy to me. I've never been a person who didn't want to be disliked or unliked for anything, and that caused me to hold my tongue a lot of times when I really needed to not hold my tongue, when I really needed to step up and be the advocate for my students or for myself or now for my own children. In each and every single one of those moments, I have learned what to do and what not to do. This moment in my personal life was so pivotal because I was 22. I had an assistant who had been doing this job for longer than I had been alive. And she knew what she was doing. But I didn't always agree with the way she did things or what she was doing. And I didn't have any training in how to tell somebody that. Because I didn't feel like I knew what I was doing. It was my first year. I was still in grad school. I was trying to figure out the whole system and actually apply it all. And you guys know there's a huge difference between your internship and somebody guiding you through it to actually being put in the deep end. Even though I had direct access to multiple O&M specialists who also worked with this OMA and who had also been there during my internship. I mean, I was so lucky in so many ways, but it was still a big struggle. So much so that if you see me on my video, you'll notice that I have tattoos on my wrists that are in Sanskrit. You guys also know I'm a big yogi, but these tattoos, one says serenity and one says strength and it came from the turmoil within myself of having to learn how to be serene but not be bullied or barreled over and also how to be strong but not overpower the other person or come off rude 
or condescending. So learning that fine balance, I'm telling you, for me personally, it took me a good few years to learn that, to figure it out, to learn how to give feedback, to figure out what skills needed to be given to somebody else for them to teach and what I needed to be doing and how much time that would then a lot extra for my IEPs and how that would come down to the nitty gritty of the data and all of those things that you'll want to be taking into consideration when you're role releasing to an instructional aid. Now, I don't want to put the fact that this is something that I struggled with and had to really learn how to overcome onto you. If you have great innate leadership skills, take those and run with it. I just wanted to share with you before we get into my personal opinion about how to do these things or where I gathered my information from, so you know that this is not something that came easy to me whatsoever. And even now that I have multiple employees, it's still not something that comes easy to me. Role releasing anything can be a delicate balance between the strength of teaching them what you need them to do, holding them accountable to doing it, calling them on it when they don't, not if, but when, because everybody's human, and also doing it in a way that's nice and understanding and not condescending or bully or anything like that. The good news is that usually our students have an instructional aid when they have multiple impairments or if they are going in between classes and they get a little lost and they need an instructional aid to help them find their way to their class on time. I haven't seen very many instructional aids with students outside of those realms. Like there are students who are in the regular school board of education classes and they travel around their school independently. They typically don't have an instructional aid. So we're really going to be talking to the, the students who have multiple impairments who have an instructional aid and to the students who might change in between classes, maybe they're in between gen ed and special ed, or maybe they're doing all gen ed classes, but they just need some help to get around their school. We're going to be talking specifically to those. So let's actually break this down as far as O&M skills, what you are allowed to give to other people and what you as far as I understand it, in this moment, are not allowed to give to other people. First things first, the instructional aide is not allowed to teach the skills. They are allowed to support the skills. Just like O&M specialists are not allowed to teach Braille, unless you're a TBI as well, but we are allowed to infuse the Braille in our maps, in our lists, and we are allowed to support Braille in our classes. It's kind of the same thing, where I actually look at it if my student is in the emerging stage, or if they are getting to the competency stage, but they're under about 70%, then I'm still teaching the skill and I'm still refining the skill. And I want to be the person who's working on that skill. So that means that might be the IEP skill, it might be an objective within it, or it could be a smaller skill 
you know, for example, like stairs or inclement weather, that happens naturally, but doesn't come within the IEP goal. Those skills, I want to make sure that I'm still the one that's the primary person teaching those. And as your student gets better, 70% above when it's time to generalize, that's when I start to have the instructional aid become more of the maybe the point of contact or maybe the person who is teaching those skills more while I move on to other ones. Now, if your student is still in the emerging for very basic skills, then as soon as you figure out what works and what doesn't work and how to ask the questions and the instructional strategies that get the best level of performance and motivation from your student, then get your instructional aids into the conversation. Show them what you are doing. And this might be a slower role release where it may not be one and done type of thing where you just have one meeting and you say, okay, I'm not touching that anymore. That's not going to be the case. For your skills that are still emerging and about less than 70%, and I'm talking 70% like generalized, right? Because that it'll all depend on your actual IEP and the percentages that your student needs to meet and all of that jazz. So just take this as like emerging to 70% generalized. And then when you're working on the generalization of the skill, like crossing all campus streets correctly, whatever, then you can move on to the instructional aid is going to be helping them to generalize these skills and support you in helping the student to actually practice the skills in all environments. Because your instructional aids, they are with the students. In my personal opinion and in my background, they're the ones with the students longer during the day. They're the ones who probably eat lunch with them, who go to specials, who go to PE, who are there in the morning. They might be there in the morning for breakfast before the teacher gets there. They might be there in the afternoon after the teacher leaves. They might be there doing the pickup and the drop-off with the parents. A lot of times it's instructional aid that spend more time with your student, and that's a really, really good, how do you say, contact to have and to allow your student to practice the skills that they need to generalize much more than you can provide because you're with other students. So if we're looking at, let's say TAPS or the O&M inventory, in the inventory under the assessment checklist, this is all free, you just Google O&M inventory, you will find where it says concepts, and now they're talking about up, down, side, forward, back, stop, just reinforcing those concepts, laterality, parallel perpendicular, time distance and units of length, that's something that your instructional aides can be assisting with as well. That skill specifically, I find to be a higher level skill. So your instructional aides, they may not work on that one. And then movement. So standing up, sitting down. If you look at the tops, there's a whole list of can they bend forward? Can they bend backwards? Can they bend to the side? Those things, if your student has a movement clause, if your instructional aid is in PE with your student, or if you have the ability to pair with your APE teacher, those are really great to help role release. In the inventory, it says single room, unfamiliar 
directional relationships, seating rows, tables, locate dropped objects. When I think of locate dropped objects, I often think of picking up the cane from the floor or the chair, wherever your student stores their cane when they're actually at their desk. A lot of times I've noticed that instructional aides are in classes where the desks are either in clusters or they're in a big actual table, lower ratios probably. And those students might need help remembering where their cane is, bending down, picking it up. Because remember, vestibularly, coming back up after you've bent down is really scary and pretty difficult for some of our students with multiple impairments or ONH. So that kind of skill. Now we get into the areas where it's indoor, like hand trailing, navigating open spaces. So squaring off, push pull, sliding doors. And then here's my professional opinion stairs. I think the OM specialist needs to teach and then the instructional aide can support. Escalators, I might actually avoid, but it's completely up to you. It depends on your situation. And then we get into self-protection. So they have upper protection, lower protection, and then human guide, reading menus. Okay. So I think those are all skills that were an absolute yes to hand off to an orientation and mobility assistant. Also, I've handed them off to the instructional aides. Now, do I still teach them? Do I still reinforce them? Do I still report data on them? Absolutely. But your instructional aides are going to have more opportunities to reinforce those skills than you will. Now, here's the section where it gets a little tricky. Cane skills, like basic skills, grip, constant contact. When you get into two-point touch or touch and drag or shorelining, that's where I would make sure that if you're going to be role-releasing this, that your instructional aide 100% knows what is expected. And I think that it's better to have a reminder more often if the student needs to remember to move their cane so that their muscle memory gets ingrained within them. And also, if you take the time to set it up with the instructional aid to teach them how to do it correctly before you just like hand this off and expect them to know what you're talking about, then you have less correcting to do later and less confusion later. Now, after that, that's about where it stops. At least, again, me, my opinion, I did not have the OMA or instructional aides teach street crossings or go off campus with any of my students. Of course, when they're going for community-based instruction, that's an absolute yes. I want my students to be as independent as possible in the community. But as far as like, teaching a plus-shaped intersection. For me, that was a no. That's where my role releasing for everyday purposes stopped. On the campus that I worked where I had the OMA, it was a huge campus. If you can imagine like a small community college campus where there were multiple streets involved in, I mean, just going to the cafeteria, you might've had to cross two streets going from your school to the dorm, you might have had to cross a few streets. And so in that case, yes, I had them learn how to do that. Now, at the elementary schools or middle schools that I've been at in the public setting, there really aren't that many streets. So it's not a skill that my OMA or my instructional aide would need. 
out in the community or in public schools, even when I had a student with CVI and she was in a wheelchair and limited mobility. I didn't have the teaching assistant or instructional aide do any street crossing, anything with her there, simply because it just didn't happen in their day to day. And then for on-campus O&M, that's actually a really great place for your IA, your instructional aide, to help out. There are a lot of things that your instructional aides can help with, specifically cane skills, trailing, we mentioned all of that. Helping the student to learn their routes is really great. And helping if your student is like in a wheelchair, giving options. Do we turn left here or do we turn right? Because even though the instructional aid is the one actually propelling or moving, you want to give your student with multiple impairments as many opportunities to make their own decisions as possible. So in those situations, turning left to right, maybe you can have two switches. Maybe you can have something on the tray where they just press one side of the tray or press the other side of the tray. You can have you know, picture symbols where the student has to tell the instructional aid to stop. Maybe they just put their hand on the stop picture symbol, something like that. And allowing your student to not just be pushed or guided or told exactly where to go. Because one way that you can use your instructional aid is to help support your students' independence. It's the whole reason that they're there is to help to support their education. And part of their education is their independence because they cannot function in the world if people constantly tell them where to go. If they form a schema about themselves based off of the fact that people have just always told me where to go and one day they're expected to get a job and then we're like, oh, you're 18, sorry. We don't do that for you anymore. They're going to be like, huh, that's just not how they view themselves. So your IA can help them develop that sense of self. And they're there, and your IA is there with that student multiple times a day traveling these routes. How do we get to PE? Who are we going to see? Even if it's something small as taking a picture symbol or a object symbol and putting two options in front of the student and saying, okay, it's Wednesday. We've already gone over your calendar. Where are we going today? Art or PE? Now, of course, you'll have to figure that out with a student if they're like, no, it's really PE day, but I want to go to art. Then, you know, you don't want to put yourself in that situation. But here's the thing also. As the expert, it is your job to empower the instructional aid to back off. Again, it is your responsibility to empower the instructional aid to back off because they are not your student's friend. They are not another student. They shouldn't be holding hands. They are not your student's mother. They are not your student's grandmother. They should not be coddling the students, but instead there just to ensure their safety, their independence, and to support their education. Now, some of you guys are like, yes, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> and if you're new to the field, then you will soon know exactly what I mean. Because society as a whole, especially if they haven't been put under blindfold for many hours and had to develop that sense of competency like we have, they often see our students as 
we can't, or the IA will take on the fears of, you know, maybe the parents or other society members or just having fears of themselves. And you'll start to see that they're very well-meaning. They really are. They wouldn't be in this job getting paid as little as they're getting paid for the amount of work that they have to do if they did not care. We can't take that away from anybody, but that doesn't mean that we do everything for the students. Another way that you can use your instructional aids is to be a parent liaison. Now, this is really great because you're not there at school drop-off or pick-up. So if the parent is starting to walk in with a student holding their hand and not having their student use their cane, that's not something that the related service staff is going to pick up on very quickly. Also, since you have so many other students in so many other schools or districts, you probably don't have the relationship with the parent that the IA has. So you can use that to your advantage and train the IA what to look for, what's expected, what have you and the parent talked about. And on the same note, that instructional aid since they probably do have a better relationship with the parents, they can probably let you in on, you know, the parents are getting a divorce, they're getting kicked out of their home, they're living in a car, whatever the case may be. So you can get that information and that intel before you call the parents and start to express your feelings about how things are going to the parents. I hope that makes sense. And and I'm trying to be very diplomatic here because I don't want anybody to feel like you're necessarily doing the wrong thing. If you have strong advocacy tendencies and you are quick to call people on the stuff that they're not doing, I just want to remind you that not that you shouldn't do that 100%. We need to hold everybody accountable for the best interests of the student and their child, but Sometimes it's also really good to be able to get the intel from the instructional aid to say, okay, maybe there's a kind approach that I can take to this and still get results. Now, if you're like, oh, Cass, I don't really agree with that, then you go on with your own improved self. That's fine. So we've talked about what the IAs can teach, where the line stops, at least in my professional opinion and what I've been taught. Now we're going to go into what do you do? How do you get them to do the things you want them to do? Well, first, you have to train them. And you probably weren't taught how to train people besides in services. So here are some ideas for you that have worked really well for me in the past. The first is to be very preventative. By that, I mean at the very beginning of the year, you will want to try to meet with every instructional aide. The way that this might work best if you're itinerant is to set up a meeting that every instructional aide that you'll be working with at one specific school can meet, preferably before the students get to school the first week or maybe during the first week or during the second week, but definitely before academic expectations begin. And then you want to walk the routes or at least sample routes with the instructional aides and explain to them exactly what is expected at each and every single term. Now, I had instructional aides that walked with four or five students with visual impairments 
And I don't know if you've walked with gaggles of kids with visual impairments before, but they don't walk all at the same pace. And you want to let them walk at their own pace. So it can be really tricky when you've got one on five and they're all students with visual impairments. One might have multiple impairments, one might be in a wheelchair. And that in and of itself can be its own tricky aspect. Or you could have a situation where you have one instructional aide with a class of 30 students and they're there mostly for the educational support of your student. But since they are a body there, they're used as the adult in charge, which is totally fine. But it also means that they have other students to take care of. Just saying that you want to give your instructional aide very specific and explicit instructions and then also understand that in those moments, they have a lot of other pressures and a lot of other stressors going on as well. But that doesn't mean that they can't do what you asked. If you're saying to yourself right now, yeah, but I don't know, like, how? How would I even teach an in-service? How would I get them involved? How would I, like, keep them engaged? I would go listen to The Art of Presenting. It's episode 18, I believe. And in there, I explain how to present and how long to keep your presentations, your in-services. It's not just about conference presentations, but about any kind of presentation that you might want to do. Okay, but it's not the beginning of the year now. So what am I going to do? And my instructional aides keep messing up and I don't know what to do. And maybe you're scared to say something. Okay, let's take a breath. And then the best thing that I've ever done, and I don't know why I stopped doing this because it really was the best, is I would make a one-page brochure on the student's skills. This allowed for a super quick read. I didn't ever tell anybody to, but it often got put up in the classroom or the dorm or somewhere near a door, which was amazing. And it was just simple bullet points. I made it like a trifold. You can have a picture of the student actually performing the skill. So like, hey, here's a visual for you. And then some bullet points on what they can do, the exact words that you use to help them do that, and then some things to look for, like precautions or what not to do, kind of stuff like that. Simple bullets, very easy, and it just allows everybody to know, hey, look at these skills my student can do. And then now you've started the conversation on a positive note. It's not expected to be at the beginning of the year because you're moving through skills the whole year. And everybody's now on the same page. You don't necessarily have to call a team meeting. If team meetings are part of your normal schedule, you can bring it up at a team meeting. And then you have something tangible, really easy to read. I wouldn't make a 10-point font. I'd make it at least 12, 14, 16, like an actual brochure that you might pick up somewhere. Something easy, quick, look what the student can do. Student is using their cane skills now. Student use upper body protective technique, whatever it is, just one skill for the student, very simple. And then you can just ask the IAs, will you help me support this? And tell them that you are happy to show them how to support it. And you can even go as far as saying like, hey, when do you have time for me to come by? Or at this point, you guys can probably Zoom 
or you can video chat. I'm not saying you have to drive two hours to your IA when you're not necessarily going to be there, but it's their planning time or maybe even like their lunch time if you're not in that area, because I understand that your schedule could probably be different. But that way you at least have a way to show them, hey, the student can do this. If you're allowed to take video of the student, I would do that too. Upload it to wherever you're allowed to upload it to. And of course, film it on whatever device you're allowed to film it on. And then send that link to the instructional aid or maybe to the entire team. I mean, what assistant principal or principal wouldn't want to know how great your student is doing? And it just gets everybody on the same page with one skill, super simple. But if that isn't working or you don't want to do that and you are still noticing some skills pop up, you do need to address it. You are ultimately the student's advocate and there's a simple way that you can address skills with anybody and have it not come off like you're being mean or rude but you're still being the advocate. There's a three-step formula that I like to use. In the book, Dare to Lead, Brene Brown says, clear is kind. And I want you to remember that if you've been somebody like me who's really had to struggle to step up into their leadership role, being unclear with people is not kind. Because ultimately what happens is it leads to resentment It leads to a breakdown in communication and they could potentially get in trouble for not doing something that they were supposed to be doing simply because you did not have the courage to share with them specifically what they needed to be doing and how. And then when they didn't do it to support them, not to support them not to do it, but to support them to do it. Because if they're not doing something, there's some obstacle in their head some belief that you have to overcome. So here's a formula, and I'm going to use one from a book called Radical Candor by Kim Scott. It is a great read, especially on Audible. And in the book, she talks about being radically candid. She has her own framework that I won't even go into right now, but basically says that if you express to somebody that you care about them personally and yet hold them responsible for what they need to be doing, then the mixture of those two things is the best way to help somebody do their job better. So the first part of it is that you share something with them that lets them know that you care about them. The big thing here is that you don't want to start the conversation just digging into the issue. You could say something like, thank you for all the hard work that you've been putting in with our student, Sally. It has really been showing. Or you can say, I know that this job means a lot to you. It doesn't have to be like, I know you went to Disneyland three weeks ago with your children. And I saw on Facebook that it doesn't have to be anything like that. It can be one sentence, just expressing something personal and acknowledging their hard work. Usually I like to acknowledge their hard work. And then the second part of this is where you gather up your courage and you are very clear and you point out the issue. So in this case, it would say something like, 
I noticed Sally is not moving her cane as much as she used to. Now, what you want to avoid here is pointing your finger and charging them with the responsibility or saying something like, you aren't helping Sally move her cane better. But just pointing out the issue, not putting it on the person. Does that make sense? I hope it does. You can't talk back to me. I don't know why I even asked. So you're not going to make it about them. You're going to make it about the actions. Just like you would say to a three-year-old, you wouldn't say, you are a bad person. You would say, you're making bad decisions. Pretty much the same. Things have to change, and it's up to you to advocate for your students. So you can do this in a simple way that points out the mistakes and shares with them what needs to be happening, then that will help. Okay, then the third one is to actually tell them what needs to happen, and you have to get them on board. I like to make sure that I ask a question, and not like a condescending question, like, you know, you tell somebody that they're doing something incorrectly, and then you say, like, do you agree? Or when people say the word right after every sentence like that, or in those conversations, because they may not agree. They may not value your opinion. They might have had trauma at home the day before. They might, who knows, who knows what's going on in their life and who knows the reason why they're not doing it. But it just makes them acknowledge what you've said and helps to give them a clear path to being able to correct it. So the conversation could go something, I'm just going to make something about the cup. It could go something like, I'm going to use the name John as an example. I don't actually know a John in this situation, but you could say something like, hey, John, I really appreciate how much you've been working with our student Sally on her cane skills, but I noticed that she's starting to move her cane over to the right instead of in the middle and over to the left as she's traveling. I'm wondering if we could work together to help her move her cane in the middle of her body so that she covers the left side and it allows her to detect the obstacles that could possibly come up on her left side. Now to him, it might have been like there's only ever things on the right. So I thought that's where I wanted it. You know, you never know. But in this way, it's something really quick. It starts the conversation and then you hold your ground and expect that John does what you asked him to do. You can then follow up. You can say something uplifting. It's so nice to work with you. I really enjoy that we can be a great team, something like that. Some people call this like a criticism sandwich that's been around for many years. Same kind of concept. Like you just sandwich it in, sandwich the criticism in between some nice things, but you don't avoid it. So I hope that that was helpful to you. Today, we talked a little bit about my history with an orientation and mobility assistant, how I've struggled to learn these skills and how they've not come easy to me. I don't want you to think that I'm some sort of any like rainbow unicorn who doesn't struggle with this stuff because I definitely do. We talked about the skills that your instructional aid can teach and where the line is as far as like if you look at the O&M inventory, if you look at TAPS, where that line is and when you can will release the skills to the instructional aid and you can start to move on with other skills. 
And we also talked about what to do, how to train your instructional aides. And I gave you a couple examples of that and how to give anybody criticism. So that way you can become the advocate for your students and hold their parents, their instructional aides, everybody accountable for how they treat the student and how that can also impact the student's life. So I hope that that was helpful for you. I'll keep putting these questions out on Instagram at Cassie Maloney so that way you can let me know what kinds of things you would like to hear, what obstacles you're going through, and if I have the answers or if I have an answer, I can share it with you. But if not, we can get some other experts in here to share their perspective with you as well. I hope that you have a super wonderful day and I hope that this helps you to take a step forward today. Bye y'all.